During the 1970s, NASCAR fans were treated to a team and two drivers that were virtually unstoppable when it came to winning NASCAR races and championships. First, there was Cale Yarborough behind the wheel and former driver Junior Johnson turned team owner calling the shots from the shop in the pits. It was a great combination because of one particular piece of the puzzle that money couldn't buy. They were both country boys that didn't say much, understood each other to a T, and most importantly, drove like each other on the racetrack. It was a match made in heaven. Yarborough and Johnson were together from 1973 through 1980 and collected 55 of Yarborough's 83 Career Cup Series wins together as well as three Cup Series championships in 1976, 77, and 78. Then in 1980, Yarbrough elected to cut back on his schedule to spend more time with his family. He moved to MC Anderson's team to drive a limited schedule of races. That left the door open for Darrell Waltrip to come to Johnson's team for the next six seasons through 1986. And boy, were things different. Waltrip was opinionated, talked all the time, changed his setups on his race cars, and ruffled a lot of feathers. But he knew what he wanted, and he knew what it took to win. There was a new sheriff in town in Ingle Hollow, North Carolina, where Johnson's shops were located, and everyone was just going to have to get used to it. Well, the result was a Cup Series championship and 12 wins in 1981, a Cup Series championship and 12 more wins in 1982, and there was a strong challenge for a Cup Series championship in 1983, as well as six victories, but that went to Bobby Allison, their chief rival the previous two seasons in the Die Guard Racing Buick. Waltrip also won the Cup Series championship in 1985 and logged a total of 43 of his 84 career victories while driving Johnson's Chevrolets. As it was the case with Yarbrough, Waltrip had great years with Johnson before joining Rick Hendrick and Hendrick Motorsports at the start of the 1987 season. Both plans of operation worked, the quiet but ultra-aggressive Yarborough and the ultra-loud and at times overbearing Waltrip, but each won multi-championships under the direction of Junior Johnson, the wise old sage that had seen it all and done it all in an era of racing that was nothing short of remarkable. With Yarborough and Waltrip, there were two schools of thought that produced a great deal of success. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy Ben White, and this is episode number 79. That's right, 79, and we have a very, very special guest with us today, Mr. Jeff Hammond from Sirius XM NASCAR and PRN as well, and you've known him for a number of years, not only as a broadcaster, but also as a crew chief, and one of the, the the more familiar faces in the NASCAR garage, and Jeff, it's great to have you joining us today. Uh, we know, understand you've got a, a commitment this, uh, a little bit later this morning, so we're going to make this very uh, uh, timely and brief. But we're going to get you in, and we got a lot of st- to talk with you about about your career, uh, some of the you know better stories you've had over your uh, lifetime, some of the uh, things you've seen, the things you've heard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. I guess the best place to start off with is, um, you know, right now you're doing a lot of stuff with Sirius, with PRN. You know, it's keeping you busy. I mean, 
How much do you, uh, how much or how easy of a segue was it for you to go from the, you know, the crew chief world, the the actual mechanical world, if you will, of NASCAR to the broadcast world? I mean, was it a difficult transition or not? It was a scary transition. And good morning, gentlemen. I really appreciate you having me here. Um, and at the same time, yes, Jerry, it was a it was a scary moment in my career because all of a sudden, you know, I had a little bit of experience on TV. I'd done a few commercials, you know, because of different sponsors. And you always think, well, you understand, you know, how it needs to be done. And working with Daryl, uh, he's just got the gift for gab and everything like that. And you know, you think you pick up something, but I remember that first broadcast and every everything, all the even the the uh, I guess you might say you had to all do the auditions mm-hmm. for them to even say, Hey, you know, we want you to be on there. All these things were very intimidating because there wasn't a, a book. I mean, it wasn't anything I could open up and, and this is how you do it. Uh, and so you really were at, uh, at the mercy of the folks at Fox, what they told you uh, and the people who, who you were working around. And, you know, fortunately there was Mike joy who, I mean, he is the, He's primo. I mean, he knows everything about the sport, especially broadcasting. Uh, so, you know, lean on him a little bit uh, early on. And, and But when they, when they said, you know, we're on the air, uh, I'll be dead honest with you, my, my butthole puckered up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, the thing you brought to the table, so Jeff, is that you had years and years and years of experience uh, turning wrenches and and you knew everything there was to know about a race car, and that's what you had to bring. And and that you're you're phenomenal about the knowledge that you do bring, and and that's what they needed. And and you're so good at it. But one of the things I wanted to go way back in the game, and you know, you had the honor of working to with a couple of guys, uh, and a lot of guys, but especially two guys. Uh, one on one end of the equation, uh, one end of the of the spectrum, Kale Yarborough. And then on the other end of the spectrum, Darrell Waltrip. And I guess the question I had is, you know, talking about Kale, the, the funny joke about Kale is that when you sit, when you when you interviewed Kale, you say, Can you tell us about the race car? He said, Well, the car is great. Can you expand on that? He said, The car, the car is really great. You know, in other words, Kale didn't have anything to say. And then on the other end of that, Daryl had a lot to say. But talk about Kale if you could a little bit. Do you remember the first time you met Kale? Uh, yeah, I was actually working for Jim Vandiver, uh, I was helping him one weekend and that was really my first introduction to Kale then. And then I got known a little bit better. I don't know if everybody remembers, but you know, Kale left stock car racing, Mm -hmm. driving full time and went Indy car racing, you know, driving for uh, Gene White, who was a Firestone dealer. And when he made his return, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, I think Ned Jarrett was involved, but they had paved Metrolina, which was a dirt racetrack here in Charlotte area. Mm-hmm. And they brought cup cars in there. And because Kale hadn't won in a long time, they invited him to run that race. Richard Childress, Elmo Langley, I mean, a bunch of the regular guys, Tony Bittenhausen Jr. And at that time, I was helping Tony Bittenhausen Jr. Uh, and I, when Kale got back there, because of the Bittenhausen relationship from Indy, Kale came over and hung out a lot. And, you know, that, and I got a chance to talk to him just a little bit more and got, got to know him probably more then, uh, than I had previously. And I mean, Kale was just a regular guy. 
I mean, he was just a regular guy. And, and the cool thing about Kale, he, he's always, when he's in the right environment, he's always got a story. I mean, he can tell you a story in a heartbeat. And a lot, most of them are very funny. So um, yeah, having a privilege to work with him once I got hired at Junior Johnson's was like a, I mean, a dream come true. Mm -hmm. Well, now the question I had too was that, did he know about race cars? I've always heard Waddell Wilson has told me some stuff about, you know, you could, he would just kind of look, stare off and say, okay, can you tell me about the car? How's the car handling? And he really wasn't, now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't really know how to tell you about a car, but he could win with whatever he was if it wasn't too bad, he could win with it. Is that right or wrong? I think the, uh, I mean, the way that I, I learned and understood Kale was he did rely heavy on Junior and her nap when I first got there. And whatever they did to the car, he said, he, you know, it was either I like it or I don't like it. Yeah, okay. It was real simple. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. That answered the question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think the most profound statement that I ever heard that came out of Kale's mouth was when Herb Nab had left and they brought in Travis Carter and Tim Brewer and they were kind of like getting acclimated, you know, working with each other. And Travis Carter asked him a question about the way the car was handling on entry or whatever. And I remember this because it was so profound guys just get it close. I'll make up the difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that said a great deal about Kale, you know? No, as, and, and I mean, did. that's that's the thing. And, you know, you, Ben, you asked, him, you know, having worked with Kale and worked with Daryl, and I think it's only fair that if you're going to make an, a, a, a comparison, that we kind of set the parameters in which I work with the drivers and how I appreciate them. Um, I look at it like two prize fighters, most notably Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, mm -hmm. you got the brawler and you got the boxer. Kale was the brawler. I mean, he would wrestle the car hotter the day, the slicker the track, the better he was because he would wear the competition down. He'd figure out some way <clears throat> at that time to, to run the car as hard as he possibly could and force everybody else to keep up with him. Mm -hmm. And you got to remember, they didn't have the, the high price cockpits that they do today they had you know banjo seats in them no you know air conditioning be lucky if you get a hose even in there um no power steering i mean and in the very beginning didn't even have disc brakes so i mean he was he was the guy that could battle with the race car battle with the competition like a joe frazier would be he just keep coming just keep coming keep coming mm -hmm. and yeah. daryl on the other hand he was trying to figure out how can I, how can I slip this jab in here and not get my jaw knocked off with the right, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I got you. That, that was, that was, he, he was always trying to get us to make the car do the work. So he mm -hmm. wouldn't have to. Kale yeah. didn't care. Just you guys get the best you can and I'll dang sure to give it the best I got. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, one of the things, and I, a couple more here and I'll turn it back over to Jerry, but uh, you know, one of the things Junior told me himself was the way the reason he loved Kale so much is because he drove like, like I he said he drove like I did. In yeah. other words, they were just two peas in a pod, as they say here in the South. And and you know they and I would love to know if you were sitting in the room and and 
Junior is on one side of the table and Kale's on the other side of the table. I, I'm guessing there wasn't a lot of words spoken, right? They didn't have to, <laughs> you know? No, right? they, there, there was no, I mean, in the early days, especially, like I say, working in that environment, there were no debriefs. There were no, you know, calls after the race. I mean, whatever mm. you did and whatever you said, you said before you left the racetrack, and the driver went back to his house, so back back to South Carolina, and we went back to Ingle Hollow. Whatever was communicated while he was changing his uniform and getting ready to leave was what was kind of like the game plan for the next week. And when we showed up there, I mean, you got to also realize we didn't have a lot of choices. We had to work with what we had, which is usually one short track car and one super speedway car back in the day. Mm-hmm. So we did whatever we had to do with that one Monte Carlo and left a Chevelle sitting over there till Daytona, till day. So yeah. it, it was just a, a totally different world. And in the, uh, as I said earlier, no disrespect to Kel Yarbrough, but I mean, it wasn't his responsibility to come with a setup. It wasn't his responsibility to give us any kind of input to what we were going to do to the car. If we we're going to change the spindle or we we're going to change the, the spring combination. He just showed up and drove. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One more and I'll let you have it back, Jerry. But, okay. uh, you know, as far as um, talking about Kale, just a little bit more here, just the fact, oh, here's one I wanted to ask you, uh, Jeff, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. And I always heard this story about Kale get in the car and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but he get in the car and you guys be listening on the radio and you hear this hum and, and the radio frequency and you couldn't figure out what it was and, weeks and weeks go by and i'd always heard it finally you got to the bottom of it It was kale and he would have his thumb somewhere on this button and it'd be him going and it wasn't anything in the is that true is that he used to he used to get on the button he used to get on the button quite a bit and uh, he'd grunt and carry on um every now and then he kind of talked to the car not a lot (laughs) but but you know if you ever seen in car camera of kale yarborough most drivers, you know, they got their hands right about here and they just move them to there and yeah. come back to there and come back. Kale Yarbrough inside the car. <laughs> I mean, he never stopped moving the wheel. I mean, yeah. he, he just, he just, he was always sawing that wheel. What? Not a lot, but he, he never held it perfectly straight mm-hmm. and steady. I mean, he just, he worked it the whole time. And, yeah. um, you know, that was one of the things that, you know, when you were putting the seat in, you know, we called him short man affectionately. He wasn't real tall, still not today. Uh, but <laughs> we uh, we always kept, he had to get the seat and the steering wheel back to him uh, and get everything where he could get up on the wheel. And and like I say, sawing that some He didn't get way out here with his arms extended. He had it up here close to him and he was sawing away. Yeah. Just a sawing away. Well, Just you like know, this. you know, um, one more, I'm sorry. One more. Pearson talking to Eddie and Lynn and Leonard, he never would tell him anything, really. He said, how's the car? That's all right. But how was Kale? Did he tell you things or did he just not? I never asked him anything about the car that much. I mean, I was asking, you know, asking him if he's comfortable, you know, what does he need to be comfortable inside the car? Uh, especially, you know, if we were making some changes in the pedals or anything like that, you know, trying to make sure the driver comfort was there. And the other thing that uh, a lot of people may not, understand or believe about kale one of the he used to drink two gallons of water we had two thermoses that was in his car 
mm-hmm. plus giving him drinks, you know, even during pit stops. He, mm-hmm. I mean, he definitely he hydrated like no other driver that I've ever worked with. And mm-hmm. these were the big old Coleman uh, thermoses back in the day. And uh, he just had to have his water. And the other thing was he always chewed. Um, there was a bubble gum they made back then that had salt in it. Hmm. And he would chew that. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yep. Okay. He really, he really liked this stuff. Yeah. Had to okay. have, have some bubble gum, chewing gum on there to, you know, like Dave Marcus and Dick Trickle having to have cigarettes or something, you know, they, he had to have his, <laughs> had to have his bubble well, gum. That is, that is something I did not know. Okay. I learned something today. Very good. Well, Jeff, I've, I've got to ask you, you know, let's, let's, let's segue uh, to the Jaws, Daryl Waltrip. Okay. And I, I've got to ask you, and this has been a question that has, confounded me for probably the last 25 years. I've been covering NASCAR full-time for the last 25 years. Someone once told me that Daryl Waltrip, for all his bluster, his braggadocio, his you know outward facing and the way he talks, deep down inside, Daryl Waltrip is really a shy guy. Is that true? Am I, am I allowed to call a spade what a spade is yes yes because that's bullshit (laughs) (laughs) i mean no no daryl daryl waltrip is is if he's if he's in a room you're going to know daryl waltrip's in the room when you're when you're in the van going down the road with the with the with the the road crew he's going to make darn sure that he is still the center of the conversation and i mean he is he's just he's more he's more of an extrovert than he is an introvert. I can tell you that. But isn't that his shtick, though, so to speak? I mean, you know, if you get him, I mean, you spend a lot of time with him, you know, away from the track, you know, at dinners, hotels, etc. I mean, yeah. did you ever see a private side of him where he was, let's just say, not as verbal as he normally is? I mean, do you ever see that he was kind of like introspective, if you will? Now, he's got some insight. Now, I, won't, I won't take that away from him. I okay. mean, you know, we would take, we, you know, we take talk politics and we sometimes talk about, you know, NASCAR people and different things. Uh, but genuinely, Jerry, it's easy for him to just be um, crazy. <laughs> I mean, he's, 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 like I say, he has never been, you know, short on words. The only other time, only time I ever noticed him being short on words is when he gets over in the corner of the seat and we're going somewhere for a long while and he goes to sleep. <laughs> I, I mean, love it. I love it. I, I'm, well, just, I'm just being honest. I mean, you know, it, he is he is a conversationalist. He he likes to talk. And I, I think I think probably today he slowed down some. Mm-hmm. But out of all the drivers I've ever worked with. Daryl would call me and tell me what he was thinking all hours of a day. Hmm. I mean, especially on race weekends, it would not be uncommon to have a phone call at 2 a.m. Really? I was thinking. And he'd give me <laughs> what he was thinking. But even, even like, you know, when, when we left the racetrack, even though we didn't have what you call a big-time debrief at the track, you could always count on a phone call on Monday, you know, usually Monday morning, followed up with another phone call on Monday afternoon, followed up with another phone call on Tuesday morning, followed up with another phone call Tuesday afternoon. 
he was he was going to communicate. He was going to make sure things were being done. If he wasn't at the shop, especially if he was, you know, we're getting ready to go to a big race, and he definitely had a lot of input. I mean, you know, he would talk about setups and stuff like that. I mean, he he was he was always a talker. I've okay. never known him to be shy. Okay, that brings up a great question. Okay. So at the end of 1980, Kale goes to MC Anderson. And then Daryl waltzes into Junior Johnson and Associates. And it's a total, total difference between Kale saying the car ran great. And then Daryl walks in and I wants to band in a parade behind him. How hard was that for you to adjust to? Well, again, undoubtedly, y'all have never read other places where I have commented about Daryl Walters coming in. Maybe I have. <laughs> <laughs> But when we were talking about who was going to come drive for Junior Johnson, and I'm talking about with Junior, mm-hmm. you know, at that point in time, there was an opportunity to get Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. And Junior told me, I never will forget it. He said, don't want Earnhardt. Why? I mean, because I liked Earnhardt. Me and him were buddies. I liked him. And I thought, you know, he could drive the wheels off car. And Junior said, yeah, he can but he'll cost me money. I want Daryl. What? You want Daryl? Yeah. And he'll make me money. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm sorry. You got to explain that to me. He says, it's real simple. Daryl has been in a championship run and he's lost it. He's hungry. He wants to make money because he's broke. Okay. He bought himself out of that diet. Yeah. Contract. Yeah. He's, he's hungry. True. He needs some money. <clears throat> he'll run hard. He's going to run smart. Earnhardt ain't tore up enough race cars yet, and I can't afford him to come in here and tear up my race cars. And, and that, was his, that, was his, that was his reasoning, that Daryl was seasoned and Earnhardt was still rough around the edges. He wasn't mm-hmm. ready for his style of racing. And the way it turned out, as normal when it comes to Junior's decisions, they're pretty damn smart. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, it, and he was dead on the money. And and that was the thing about Junior, too. I mean, he, Junior was like Kale. He didn't say a lot. But, boy, those wheels were turning all the time. And he knew exactly mm-hmm. what was he, – he was a visionary. He could see way, way down the road. Um, and that's what I loved about Junior, and I'm, I'm sure you did, too, that he didn't have to – he could say a lot, a lot with less, which, I mean – Junior was great with that. No, he was. He was what he really was was really good. And uh, you know, when you work for him and you'd be working there working on the shop, working on a project or something, if he walked in, I mean, he, he wasn't the kind of guy that was in there every day working with you. And he he'd make his pass through the shop from the engine room down through and the chassis, body shop, whatever, whatever needed to be done. But if we were working on something, he walked up and he leaned in there and saw what we were doing and might ask why we're doing this. And then he might say, hmm, not sure about that. And then try and walk away. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he was making us, he was challenging us. That was a challenge, but from junior that yeah. that's not the way I would do it, but you need to figure out that what you're doing is not right by me. Mm-hmm. So anytime that occurred, we automatically would stop, jump back about 10 feet, look at each other and say, okay, what are we missing? 
he made us better people because he made us look at it from maybe you might say outside the box. What work on sometimes the first you know decision to do something may not always be the mm-hmm. best. Yeah, because you're getting in a hurry to try to get it done. And you know, with Junior, if you had to stay there 24 hours straight to get it done right, that's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Rather than trying to get it done at eight and go home. So that was a great thing about working with Junior. He had a totally different style, never called, you know, team meetings and a bunch of stuff like that to sort things out or anything. He would just let everybody do their thing. And if they, they weren't doing it right, now he would he'd come after you. But he's going to make sure that, you know, you screw it up first and he may not let it get out the door, but you have to go back and fix it, fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, didn't you say to me once that, uh, you know, of course you had Neil Bonnet's team uh, across the Creek and you had Daryl's across Mm -hmm. the other side of the Creek. And didn't, didn't he sort of, you know, punch the bear a little bit on each side of the Creek and say, Hey, those boys are talking about y'all over there. (laughs) And then he'd go across the Creek and say, Hey, those boys are talking about y'all over there and sort of made the competition between you. Is that right? Well, that's yeah. That was you know yeah. <laughs> There's no way to sugarcoat that. He he enjoyed challenging us and trying to make sure that we got the best out of, out of each other. And but I think also once he realized that they were both both teams were at that point to where they were able to win and compete, uh, he backed off. And I, I think he realized he was the eleven guy. You know what I'm saying? The 11 Mm -hmm. car was really his car. Mm -hmm. The 12 car was Warner's car. You know, he owned both of them. He had interest in both of them. But the 12, the 11 was really his. I mean, even, I mean, if you go back and look, most of the time, Junior stayed in in, uh, Daryl's pits, even when the 12 was running. Very Mm -hmm. little did he ever go down like and stay in that 12 car pit. uh, During the course of the race. Saying saying he didn't walk down there, but he turned always come back. Yeah. So, so which brings up the question of, I mean, just in top of my head, Nashville, 1984, when you had the 11 and the 12 going after the win and it started off being Daryl's and it ended up being Neil's. I think it went back to Daryl, right? I can't yep. remember. Yeah. And so, but, but, but junior, he was, it was a great quote. Cause junior said, I don't care who wins. Cause I, I own them both, <laughs> so, you know, but anyway, I just, you know, just some, maybe some stories that I don't want to put you on the spot here too bad, but just that's one of them that, I, that comes to mind. That was interesting to me that great position to be in because you own both cars and it's mm-hmm. going to come down between one of the two, but that's a good example of what you're talking about. No, and that's exactly what I'm talking about with with him. And uh, I do want to say one thing, Ben and and Jerry here real quick before we get too far down the road. Because when you guys asked me originally, you know, what was like when Daryl came, uh, I want to make sure, because you kind of asked the question and I didn't really answer it. I didn't like Daryl. As a matter of fact, I hated Daryl. Okay. Okay. (laughs) To 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 the point that, Every time he'd say something, it was like putting us down when Kale drove for us. Well, I ain't way I did it. Yeah, but yeah. you didn't win the race at Nashville. We did. You didn't lead a lap. We let them all. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that was very much a sensitive subject for me because I thought Kale Yarbrough walked on water. Yeah. And I, he really was uh, great to me. And I, I to this day, I got utmost respect for him and his talent and, and his demeanor. 
Um, and I guess I guess a lot of it had to do with the fact that he would let us do our job. He didn't tell us how to do our job. Here come Daryl in there. He's always trying to tell everybody how they how it needed to be done. That's not the way we did it down at uh, Digar. Not the way we did it at Digar. How many races you went at Digar? You know, it just it was an annoying thing. Right. And yeah. for that reason, uh, we didn't get along that first year. As a matter of fact, we didn't get along to the point where Junior came to me and said, hey, I need for you to stay back here and work on these new cars we're building and come in on Sunday. Okay. Makes me happy because yeah. I ain't got to listen to him and all the stuff that he wanted to do because <laughs> yeah. he would take a perfectly good race car. And I didn't realize it until later on in the season, the reason why, but he was trying to make the car the best it could. Okay, great. We're fast. We're a top five, you know, I hear in practice. And he changed a bunch of stuff. He'd want this, want that. And next thing you know, we're back here 30, you know, can't get out of our own way. And then we have to go back and change, put it back, or we put it back to a different version. But by the end of the end of the practice session and the start of the race, the key was the car did the work and he didn't have to. So he always had a little bit in reserve. You know what I'm saying? He didn't wear himself out till that last hundred laps, the last hundred miles of the race. And he'd get up on the wheel really hard then. Um, he, he was smart in that respect. And that's where I started to change my mind and appreciate the boxer because he had finesse yeah. and he worked on his skill and got it, you know, to the point to where uh, it just, he, again, I, I wound up wanting to race the way he raced mm-hmm. and got better because of it. Um, but at one time, I mean, really, we weren't, I, I was on the outs with him more than I was on the end. Yeah. It was really, at the end of that year in 81, I went to, to junior and told him I wanted to be crew chief. And uh, he talked to Daryl about it and they worked it out. Well, I was gonna say, how did you stay out of divorce court? I mean, how, <laughs> how did you how did you keep from throwing dishes at each other? I mean, because I mean you had to fix it or you're gonna go your separate ways. So did you have that one big blowout or uh, argument or or did you just how'd you do it? No, I mean, I, I manned up and said, look, I was wrong. Yeah. You know, I see what you're, what you want to do. I understand why you want to do it this way. And that's what made it work because like with, with Daryl, you know, like I say he was, he's always talking. If you ever heard him on the radio, he probably <laughs> talks more than any yeah. driver on, ever did in at that period of time on the radio. Yeah. And sometimes it wasn't very complimentary to the way the car drove and, what was going on here and this, that, and the other, you know, you need to tell NASCAR this. So I was that guy and cause junior didn't like being like that. So mm-hmm. I was the guy that was kind of like the filter. I was the guy that would uh, absorb all the darts that were being thrown at anybody or anything. Right. And I, I would not get excited and I didn't get, I didn't take it personal. I mean, we always had a philosophy that we agreed that whatever said on Sunday, it's forgot on Monday. It's in the yeah, heat of the battle and it's trying to win. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I developed the mentality of this is how I'm going to race with Daryl Waltrip. And this is how I get the best out of Daryl Waltrip is giving him what he wants and not trying to tell him how to do his job. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, mean, end, I mean, it was, it was, it wound up being, a, you know, a good marriage for the most part. Yeah, I mean, but but let's put it in perspective for a second. For years, you got this 
this team that it runs on basically on autopilot and nobody, everybody knows what to do. And nobody says anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly somebody walks in the door, like a new owner, almost how they come in and buy the team or buy a company. And they are just talk, 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 talk. And everybody wants to let's change this. Let's change that. And this, well, that's not the way we've been successful. I know, but I got the better, you know, nobody has to explain Daryl there. Everybody knows Daryl. And I understand where you're coming from because suddenly it's like, we got to change everything that's and it's not seemingly working, but we're, he's here. He's got a contract. He's going to be here forever. So we got to figure out how to fix it. So I admire you for, you know, trying to come up with a plan because you're like, well, I mean, you're, the, the thing is we all like to win. Right. And yeah, even though he challenged us and we were going through a lot of, extra work because we were downsizing the cars at that period. You know, we'd gone from the big 115 yeah. inch cars down to 110 and narrowed them up about five inches. And it was a big challenge. And we built yeah. a lot of cars that year. Yeah. But that was, that was a headache in itself. It was, you know? it was. Yeah. And, you know, working through all that and learning from all of the, of the challenges that year, I still will point out that even though we got behind early on, we rallied back and won that championship with 12, 12 wins. Yeah. Okay? Which is so impressive. You know, Tim Brewer left and, and Harold Elliott left. And I mean, there's a couple three other guys left to go with Kale. I mean, go, the, to go down to Kale because they Kale and MC Anderson and they wanted it back. And Junior didn't want to pay them the money that they were going to get down there. So, you know, that's the reason why I got to be crew chief along with Mike Hill and Doug Richard in 82. But yeah, everybody knows the story. Right. Well, see, there's another 12 wins and yeah, and, uh, and won another championship from coming from behind. So yeah, I mean, and, it's it's mm -hmm. it's everybody pulling together because there there we got a bunch of guys that have never worked together. Took us a little while to figure out how to how to dance to the music, but once we got it figured out, it worked. Well, see, you got a threefold situation going on here. You got a brand new car that's flipping inside out down in Daytona, you know, that, that car from the lower wheelbase. And then you've got, uh, Daryl, the word to deal with, which is an, a totally different chapter. Then you got to deal with the championship run in 81, 82 and 83 against Diegard and Bobby Allison. Yeah. So that, I mean, you're like, Holy cow, where's the box of goodies? I mean, Where's the case of goodies? I mean, because you're, and then you're a crew chief with a bunch of new guys, right? So, I mean, you had the world on your shoulders at that point. And I mean, it's, I mean, you did, you, you did great to have championships in 81 and 82 in that situation. Um, but yeah, and you're, you're having to change your entire mentality from autopilot, so to speak with kale to having your hair on fire in three different areas. I mean, gosh almighty, it was just crazy, but yeah, I admire you for doing it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, as we talked about prior to coming on, it was just, you go from, from kale, you know, 120 over 80 blood pressure kale to, to 300 over 900 with Daryl. I mean, it was just two different, totally different personalities that you have to adjust to. And just amazing that, that you were able to do that over those years. For sure. But the thing is, gentlemen, I had the best ace in the hole anybody in racing ever had. Junior Johnson. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about somebody who is kind of like an anchor or a cornerstone. I mean, that's Junior. I mean, he had worked with some of the most unbelievable talent and personalities in the early years of NASCAR as anybody. Yeah. And he developed his own style of driving and he developed, developed his own style of being a car owner. And people that he put it behind the wheel, uh, they produce stuff that's still in the record book today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Leroy Yarborough went in, went in the, you know, the big three. Um, Charlie Glotzbach. I mean, you got, you got to even when Bobby Allison drove for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of talent and a lot of uh, unbelievable things that came out of Ingle because Junior had insight. And you said it earlier, he had vision to be able to see an opportunity with a driver or a car manufacturer, no matter what it was, he made the right decisions along the way. And when you're working in that kind of environment, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's almost like you've got this big, bad monster, you know, mm-hmm. wild man from Ingle Hollow behind you. If you ever got in trouble, he was going to step up and help protect you. He's sure. always there to sound stuff off. I mean, he he yeah. would keep you from getting in over your head if he saw it coming. Right. But well, if you went to him and, and and shared with him what your plan was, he would give you a thumbs up or give you a thumbs down. On it. I mean, mm-hmm. he taught me how to win fuel mileage races. You don't try to win a fuel mile race in the first hundred miles. You don't do mm-hmm. it in the first hundred laps. You know, you you don't start worrying about fuel mile mile races until it means you can win the race because of taking that chance. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it comes down a lot of times to common sense thinking and that's what he had so much of, but one of the most, uh, one of the greatest things he ever did was the fact that he wasn't selfish. And what I mean by that was think back to not to the late 1970, when he had a chance to go to RJ Reynolds and and talk to them about, I want you to sponsor my car for what 300,000 or whatever the number was. And he could have put that in his back pocket and said, yeah, I'll just take that sponsorship. But no, he didn't do that. He said, you need to go call Bill France senior because you got so much money. The sport needs your money. I don't, you know, I could take your money, but we need it elsewhere. And he, he was not selfish about that. He, he, he thought of the sport more than he thought of himself. And lo and behold, that opened up a brand new world to, to save the sport. So I mean, he could have been extremely selfish about it and kept that in his back pocket and said, I'm taking the money. Well, no, he didn't do that. He he saved the sport because at that time, the manufacturers were cutting a trail. Ford and, and Chrysler and, and Dodge were, were not happy, and they were out. And we, we might not even be sitting here today. We'd all be doing something else if Junior hadn't saved us, right? And so that was another thing about Junior. He was He had vision, as I've said before. And uh, so kudos to him. And that's partly why he was in the first class of the NASCAR Hall of Fame because of his generosity to the sport. So it's yeah. his his record. And, and a lot of people still don't quite understand how does this. And, and don't take me wrong when I use the term, but he this illiterate guy from Wilkes County. Mm-hmm. Why has he got so much? I guess you might say authority or influence mm-hmm. on the sport because he had more common sense than anybody in the sport. Yeah. Yeah. He sure did. 
Jeff, I got a couple of questions. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. <clears throat> you mentioned about Daryl would call you at all hours of the day, two o'clock in the morning, things of like that. As a crew chief, though, yeah, that can be almost, you know, being a pain in the butt. The guy calls you that much. But as a crew chief, did you kind of appreciate that, though, that he would call you with so many different ideas or suggestions? I mean, was he more the kind of guy that would give you ideas for you to think about? Or was he more of a, a demanding saying, we've got to do it this way, you know, my way, right, as opposed to the way you perceived it as a crew chief? I'm curious about that. No, I mean, if he was passionate about it, you know, he kind of put he put his foot down, which he should. But more times than not, it's like, what do you think? I'm mm -hmm. thinking this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we, nobody ever taught me how to watch a race car. So I learned what to look for in a race car. And so especially the success we had on short tracks, a lot of times it wasn't because of a stopwatch as much as it was by an appearance of the car. Mm -hmm. You know, is it turning where it needs to turn? Is it, you know, getting down the back end and launching up off the corner? Can you get back in the throttle wide open? And Daryl, you know, he would go down the corner, see what you think. And if I agreed with him and he felt like it was the right thing, then we wouldn't get real excited if we weren't quite as fast as we needed to be on the stopwatch. So we, you know, we did a lot of stuff by anticipation and interpretation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that, that was what made it so much fun. I, I can remember many times and this, I mean, and I, I think um, whenever you have somebody like Dale Lemon come over and stand by you to a place like Bristol where we were so good at, and he'd be looking and talking to me. And I know what Dale was doing. He's trying to pick my brain about what we were doing and how we were doing it, how many laps you got on your tires. Because back then, we missed a lot of stuff because we were so busy keeping up with our own cars that we didn't have enough personnel to watch the rest of the field. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the later we got in my career, we used to have people that would go with, and clock other, other cars and keep up with what they were doing. And you know what I'm saying? You might almost like uh, spying on them. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they, on this time they came in, they changed the sway bar. On this time here, they changed the track bar. You know, we, we would go back and, and we would talk about you know, the changes they were making to try to anticipate what they were seeing and what they were doing to their race cars. In the early days, you know, we didn't do that. You know, it was, it was a totally different philosophy. It was old school racing. And when you get, you know, people like Bud Moore and, and Dale Lemon and Jake Elder coming over, and kind of hanging out around where you are on pit road, you know, they're watching you and, and they're trying to see what you're doing for a reason. I mean, they think, they think you're good. And, you know, that's a, a big confidence builder, but at the same time, you had to be, you know, played a little close to the vest uh, at different times. So yeah. it, it was, uh, it was a really, I don't know. I think it was a fun way to grow up in my early years uh, and, you know, in NASCAR because of the great minds that I got to associate with and interact with, you know, talk about Bud Moore, talk about Banjo Matthews, talk right. about Harry Hyde. I mean, you, you go through there, uh, Leonard Wood, you know, and, and back then, you know, Glenn was at the racetrack a lot too, Glenn Wood. Just, just a lot of people and a lot of uh, just really unbelievable, very talented um, mechanics, including, you know, like uh, – Ray Fox, 
Mm. Him and Junior were big buddies. And, you know, getting a chance to hang out with him and talk to him. It's just, it's an incredible, it was an incredible period. Right. Yeah. right. You know, I, I, I was going to ask you one other thing, too, about, yeah. you know, when uh, I, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos of, of uh, you know, the, the wins that Daryl had over the years. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, when he would be in victory lane, uh, there were a couple of times that, you know, it would almost seem like he was obviously he wanted to be the center of attention. You yourself, I, I've got to ask you this, and I mean this kind of in a almost in a facetious manner. Um, were there certain times when he would win a race that he would be so almost over the top that you would just kind of say, eh, maybe I'll just walk away. Maybe I'll go hide in a corner or something like that. Cause he was just so over the top for you that, because you just seemed like you were so different personalities. You were the more of the quiet, you know, methodical studious type. He was the verbose type. I mean, did he ever did, did you ever get that impression after a few of the races that you just said, let Daryl be Daryl and I'll just be over here somewhere, you know? Well, I mean, yeah, that, a lot of times I, that was not, um, I don't know. I, I just always look at it like I'm just doing my job. Yeah. Okay. I mean, these wins and everything like that, uh, there were no bonus structures back in the day. There was nobody going to give me a, a copy of the trophy we won. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of trophies I've got, uh, they probably total maybe five or six, you know, and a lot of crew chiefs nowadays when they win, you know, the owner or somebody, you know, they give them a, a copy of the, of the, of a trophy, you know, the, what they won that day. So it, I'm just doing my job. You know, that's, that was what I was hired to do. And I enjoyed it. And I took a lot of satisfaction uh, out of giving him the tools to get done what he could do on the racetrack. You know, that that's to me is 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 something that's so gratifying when you're a mechanic is having something that you help put together, get it to where it needed to be. And in the end, it went, you know, through the the war of the day, whether mm-hmm. you're at Bristol or Darlington or Daytona, <clears throat> you know, everything survived. You didn't make any mistakes along the way in the, in the preparation and the execution meant, you know, you wound up winning. So it's this. Me personally, once the thing was all said and done, it's like just stand back and enjoy that quiet moment. It's not in victory lane, but that's what it is to me. Okay, pressure's off. We we you know we we did what we we're supposed to do. We did our right. job. Mm-hmm. One, one one final thing, and I'll turn it back over to Ben. Um, to, looking at yourself today, I mean, you know, we're not talking about Daryl anymore. I just want to ask you about you yourself. Do you do anything mechanically, you know, to in, in your spare time to, you know, do you want to like ever just get under the hood? Do you have any, you know, do you have any uh, project cars you're working on? I mean, tell me what you're doing. You got a smile on your face. I can see I must have struck a good nerve here by asking you this. Well, I, th- I think that part of this, um, once again, is my upbringing where I was raised in Charlotte. My grandfather, you know, did did a little, you know, had cows and stuff like that. And then go to work for Junior and Junior had cows. And I did work on his farm and helped him plow gardens and, you know, work on spreader trucks, you know, whenever something was broke down. I mean, that's what I do today. I mean, I I enjoy going to modified races, smart tour modified races. Mm -hmm. I also, you know, uh, two years ago now, I did uh, the first season of SRX. Mm-hmm. I did a, a truck series deal, you know, with Clay Greenfield for a while, but on a daily basis, I work on my farm. I mean, 
I bale hay. I work on tractors. I work on my arena. I got cows. And, you know, I stay busy uh, because of that. I mean, we, you know, we do a lot of repair work, um, bulldozers. I mean, you name it. You know, we, I say we, my son and son-in-law, that's what my son did. Instead of going into racing, he became a master technician with John Deere. Hmm. And he works for the local James River deal. And he's got, you know, him and Bo both have got two big old, you know, rigs that they go out and do all the service work on all these combines and hay equipment and stuff. And we bring it, you know, that's what we do when he gets home. You know, we work on equipment here at the house, uh, just like I would be in, in a, uh, a race shop. So we just do it after we don't start working till five or five 30. And, uh, it's just a different world, but no, I still tinker. I still got a toolbox and uh, I still enjoy, uh, my Sundays sitting there watching people like Rodney Childers, uh, for example, you know, do their jobs and and make make decisions, and I still get a lot of pleasure out of watching people when they do their jobs, make the calls right, and execute. It's it's poetry. Right. I just I feel like it's poetry in motion uh, when a race is run and strategized the right way. Right. Good Very good. Very good. Uh, Jeff, I got two more before we let you go, and, and again, we sincerely appreciate you joining us. <laughs> Okay, 1989 Daytona 500. How much did you age during that three hours, especially the last five minutes when Daryl was, you thought he might run out of gas. Did he didn't run out of gas? He thought he was going to run out of gas, but he won the Daytona 500 that day. The, the thing you said, he thought he was going to run out of gas. He kept telling me he was out of gas. And I kept telling him, no, you're not out of gas. <laughs> that was a big argument on the radio, back and forth, you know. I, tell, I kept hollering and said, shake it, baby, shake it, baby. And people said, why were you saying shake it, baby? Because the memory foam inside of a fuel cell, if you shake it, you can get more fuel to go to the back down to the bottom where it's supposed to be to get to the pickup so you can keep running. And that was just, you know, if you ever take one apart, you'd understand it. The fuel just kind of cleans stuff there inside that foam. And if you shake the race car, you can get more to the bottom. And that is what I kept hollering. I said, just, just keep shaking it, keep shaking it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, as far as aging being, no, I, I didn't think I aged. I think that, you know, time really stood still. Yeah, I was joking. I mean, it, <laughs> everything was was happening in so many different ways that almost like I felt like I went, you know, out of body to try to yeah. come up. What are we going to do here today? Because we're having to run tires that we didn't get a lot of practice on. That was back during the Hoosier Goodyear deal. Yes. And Goodyear pulled, pulled out and we had to switch to Hoosier's after spending all, all winter working on the car and the setup, you know, we qualified outside pole, uh, with Goodyear's and then we had to swap during the, the qualifying race and go to the Hoosiers. And in this particular year, we didn't get as much practice as we needed to. So our car wasn't that good. Uh, it was hitting the racetrack and we had to keep working on it, working on it, working on it. And you could clearly see Schrader who was a Hoosier guy. And he would think he was on the pole that day. Um, and even Earnhardt, where they were better than we were. I think there's a couple other guys mm-hmm. better than we were for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we it just all of a sudden looking at the way the race was running, guys are going to have to make an extra stop because they're burning so much fuel. And we figured, you know, with about two stops to go, that if we stretched this one and then when we came in for the last one, if we pumped it full, we should be able to go the distance. And so we came together as a group and literally I called a team meeting 
uh, I talked to Randy Dorton on the, over the radio. He was our spotter and our engine builder. I said, Randy, I said, how you got this thing jitted? And he said, ah, lean, pretty lean. So I got, I got a feeling between what he said and what Stevie was telling me on fuel mileage. I got Mike Powell, who's a gas man. I said, Mike, you got to get it completely full. I mean, it's got to be packed full and you got to run with it. I looked at Sandy Jones, who built the fuel cell for the 500 car. I said, Sandy, this thing going to get every outside of there. He said, it'll get every outside of there. And we mm -hmm. made a decision that we were going to go for it. So we had worked through the next, the last two stops to get in that position. And so when once he got rolling along there, you know, I'd got, I went to him on the radio early and let him know we were trying to do some fuel mileage strategy to work with me. When he went back out there, I told him, so you draft everything you can, including the seagull. Let's get it done. <laughs> Good job. Okay. Uh, Final. It, it worked out that way. Good deal. Good day. Final question. Sitting on the porch, drinking a cup of coffee, looking at the cattle. What do you want to be, what, what do you want to be remembered for in this? I mean, mm -hmm. I know I'm putting on the spot, but what, looking back, what do you, what do you want to take from it all? Hard I've already got it all. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you talk about sitting on the porch. I mean, I have had the privilege to live a life and a lifestyle that you dream about. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, yeah. racing dirt. I had the break of a lifetime and my dad was very instrumental because I wanted to go to work with some, you know, lesser teams when I kept offering jobs and I waited long enough to where I get an offer for junior Johnson. I mean, I get a chance to work with a man. It was a first ballot, you know, basically first hall of fame, hall of famer. Yes. And work with drivers that are in the hall of fame, like Kelly Yarborough and Daryl Waltrip be associated with uh, so many, you know, great individuals like Dale Earnhardt. But no, the thing about my deal, Ben, is, is what I remember because that's, I'm the one who, I mean, I'm, I'm the one that appreciates it. I'm the one that gets a big smile out of it when I think about the funny times with Earnhardt or the hilarious moments with, with a Daryl Walter or the anxious moments with a Daryl Walter when he got hurt in Daytona. Mm -hmm. Um, and the opportunity to go from being on pit road to, to working for arguably one of the best sporting networks there is in Fox and called Daytona 500s. I mean, even like I say right now, working with PRN, you know, they've given me great opportunities to do radio calls up in Indianapolis. I mean, man, I, I got a storybook career, go yes. overseas and visit troops you know, a rodeo. I mean, I, I, man, I, I've got nothing to, I, it's my memory that's important. I, it's not, I'm sorry, not, not to say that you people are and talking about all the reporters that are so good to me, you included, you and Jerry both. Everybody's been great to me, but to remember something or me worry about, you know, if I get remembered, no, nah. I'm the one that's the lucky one. I'm the one that remembers because that's something that nobody can take away. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I feel just flattered when people want an autograph. I'm flattered when people say, you know, you're one of the greatest crew chiefs ever, or, you know, miss you on, on Fox. That means I guess I did something right. 
Well, very well spoken. Very well spoken. I really appreciate it. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Well, Jeff, we're going to let you go. We know you got an engagement you've got to get to. So thank you ever so much for joining us here on a lifetime in motorsports and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, continued success in all your adventures and uh, keep those cows going as well, too. I mean, I I can kind of equate with what some of the stuff you've done because I used to do that when I was a kid. So uh, kind of brought a smile to my face as well, too. So with the farming and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So thanks ever so much for joining us on a lifetime in motorsports. And we'll be back with more of a lifetime in motorsports right after this. That was an absolutely fantastic interview with Jeff Hammond, uh, Ben. And I mean, I'll tell you, I'm very glad that he was able to join us. And, uh, you know, he had a uh, commitment that he had to get out uh, and, and leave for. But, uh, you know, we really appreciate him taking the time. And uh, I just it was just a, a great interview. I mean, the, the part where he first started seeing about how he absolutely hated uh, Daryl Walter at the beginning, that was I just I mean, that kind of shocked me in a way. But, you know, in, in a sense, though, you know, Daryl's personality could do it to some people, you know, at the first time they met him or the first few times they hung around him. But um, great stories, great interview, and uh, look forward to yeah. having Jeff on again. Well, you know, I, I obviously, you know, you had to hit some rocky roads to get smooth paths, I yep. guess, as they yes. say, because right. they ended up working together after junior with uh, Hendrick Motorsports. And then they worked together uh, with, uh, you know, when Daryl had his own uh, team. Mm-hmm. there in the early 90s and so whatever like i say whatever rocky roads they had they smoothed them out and they worked together and had a lot of success together but uh yeah jeff is such a phenomenal person uh and also great crew chief but very insightful and uh mm-hmm. and everything that he talks about as far as life and nascar and just have nothing but the world of respect for him we've been friends a long long time and uh done several interviews with him along the way but uh, great crew chief, great announcer, great broadcaster, and uh, can't say enough good about him. A great, great friend. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's uh, go. Well, let's start uh, getting towards the finish line here of a lifetime in motorsports, as we do in every episode. We always equate the episode number. And Ben, I'm starting to get a little nervous because we're at episode 79, and you know, in NASCAR right now, you know, as we for the last you know 20, 30 years or so. We've always had just the two numbers. So we're getting closer to 99 and when we hit 100. I don't know what we're going to do, but we'll figure that part of it out. But uh, this is episode 79. And as we do every week with the episode number, we always equate it with a car number in NASCAR and what that car has done over the years. So Ben, this is episode 79. Let's tell, tell us about car number 79 and what it's uh, kind of done in its NASCAR career, if you will. Sure. Well, Jerry, well, number 79, uh, it's one of those numbers that has never gone to victory lane, but there was a guy named Frank Warren that uh, ran the car for many, many races mm-hmm. during his career. Uh, actually, uh, the, it was 476 starts for number 79. As I said, no wins. But the first time that uh, the car number 79 uh, hit the racetrack in NASCAR was April 2nd, 1950, and it came at Charlotte Speedway, not to be confused with Charlotte Motor Speedway. Charlotte Speedway was the site of where uh, the first NASCAR race was held on June 19th, 1949 at Wilkinson Boulevard there in Charlotte. Long gone. Not sure how many years it was there. Not very many, actually. A couple years. A little short track there. Quarter, half mile track, I believe, uh, there. But anyway, Jim Pascal was the first driver to use it. He started 23rd in the race, finished 19th. He was driving a Ford 
owned by Al Wheatley, uh, and uh, he ran car number 70, 79 that day, but it came again on April 2nd, 1950 at Charlotte Speedway. Well, you know, the, here's an interesting uh, couple of stats about that. The, not only did it never win a race, only three top five finishes. Now, it had 30, 38 top 10 finishes, a little bit more respectable, and 250 top 20 finishes, but only three top five finishes. I and mean, it's almost like this was kind of like a number that was almost like jinxed, in, in my opinion. But in the last time that uh, the number 79 has been on a racetrack in a, on an, in an NASCAR Cup race, was uh, 10 years ago Kelly Byers drove it for several races in the 2012 season but I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot I'm not gonna put you on the spot I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a trivia question okay sure okay. so I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna mention a few names of drivers who've driven the 79 but there's one driver in particular that I'm gonna see I'm gonna test your knowledge about okay, okay. but first let me give you the, the, some of the names we got Mike Skinner we got Scott Speed Derek Cope, you mentioned Frank Warren. Ned Jarrett actually drove the 79 for one time in his race in his career. But there's one gentleman who is in. Boy, I'm going to give this away by saying this. I know I'm going to give this away. There's one gentleman who is in a Hall of Fame, not for his racing exploits, but was well known for his. Uh, brief time I maybe brief is not the right word but his his time in NASCAR but he was no more known more for his day job if you will who might that be oh I, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a hint uh uh oh, okay okay uh Okay, Marty, Marty, Marty Robbins. I exactly. was going to say I, I, that was too yeah. much an easy one. Exactly. I was going to go. I was going to go with Marty Robbins, uh, yeah. the, and and that was so cool because see, Marty uh, loved NASCAR racing so much that uh, he actually bought some cars or leased some cars from Bobby Allison and also Cotton Owens. Mm -hmm. And the, the, one of the funny stories was there was a race in the seventies that he had someone. I think it was Cotton Owens or the Petties building an oversized engine, and he just wanted to see what it felt like to run fast. And so he won. I don't know that he won the pole, but he he ran fast, and they checked the car, and NASCAR said, "You are so uh, this thing's bigger than a motorhome." I mean, this engine. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "He said I know it is, and here's the money for the fine. I just wanted to see what it felt like to run fast." And you know that was Marty. He was just cool. Oh, and let me tell you another one real, real fast. I'll make it brief. No, there was a time. Finger. Okay. There was a time, uh, and I had this in the, in the book I wrote on Bobby Allison, but this is down in, down in Alabama one night. And there, you remember Shakey's pizza? Oh, but yes, of course. Okay. Okay. There was this uh, pizza joint down there and they were having a party and it was getting late into the night. And the manager of the Shakey's pizza, he said, well, I'm sorry, people, we got to close the place. And Marty was there and uh, he said, oh, well, we're just going to stay a little bit longer. And he was playing the piano and entertaining the people. And he was sort of, the, it wasn't really a concert uh, scheduled. He was just there and on behalf of Bobby and some of Bobby's friends. And so it continued to play. And the manager comes back out again. And he says, sir, we've got to close the restaurant. He said, all right, well, what about this? How about if you just sell me the pianos, one of those upright pianos? He said, let me just, because all of the shaky pizza places had these pianos. Right, right, right. Let, let, me have, let me just buy the piano. So he pulls out a 
three, four, five hundred bucks. He said, I can't sell the piano because it's not mine. It belongs to the company. It's like, well, okay, uh, yeah, well, I'll be out in a few minutes. And so he continues to play and it's way past midnight. He said, sir, you got to get all your people out of here. We got to close. He said, well, let me just buy the restaurant. <laughs> and he's like, well, <laughs> I can't sell you the restaurant. It doesn't belong to me. It's a corporate restaurant. <laughs> so finally about three o'clock in the morning, the guy, the waiter's sitting over in the corner and he's got his robe, I mean, his, his uh, apron on and, you know, he's probably eating the leftover pizza. I don't know. <laughs> he finally just says whatever. And he's, I don't know what time they ever left, but, but Marty being the, 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 the happy go lucky guy that he was, I never had the honor of meeting Marty, but uh, he died in December of 1982, sadly with a heart attack. But right. I, I heard nothing but great things from Bobby because Bobby's a close friend of mine, but he's, he's like, he was just the life of the party type of guy. But parties like that would break out and, and Marty would drive race cars in the cup series, but everywhere he went, it's like, you know, I, he would offer to buy the piano. He'd offer to buy the building. He'd offer to buy whatever, because like, I just love a party. And that was a true story about somewhere in Alabama. It wasn't Huey town, but it was maybe Birmingham or somewhere like that. But he, it was just, it's like, if I can't buy the piano, I'll buy the building. If I can't buy the building, you know, whatever, we'll move it to the parking lot. It was just Marty. He was just typical Marty Robbins. Great. Guy. I hope to God he left a very, very, very good tip that night. Oh, That's I'm, oh I'm sure he did. Probably <laughs> a couple thousand bucks. He <sighs> he just loved people. He loved singing. He loved racing. Just a great, great guy. But yeah, he he ran. I don't recall. I apologize. I don't recall the number of races he ran. But he ran pretty good. He ran for Cotton Owens. Mm -hmm. Uh, he cars from Cotton. He and Bobby we sold him some cars or ran some cars with with uh, Marty. Um, but he's a pretty good race driver. He had a couple of crashes though that, that got hurt in a couple of times. But uh, yeah, but he he ran good and and sadly, like I said, lost him at, in December of 1982. Uh, but he, he loved to run places like Talladega and Daytona and those types of races. But you think, but he had many, many hits, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in country music and country music hall of fame and enter uh, anyway, I could go on and on, but he, in the early sixties, he ranched a lot of short tracks around Nashville and had a, had a great driving career. And the people in, in Nashville and his record producers like, what are you doing this for? He said, you're such a great singer. What get off these racetracks. He said, heck no. I'm not getting off the racetrack. I love racing and to the point where he's driving and singing. So anyway, great. enough, but great guy. Well, 35, yeah, he, he was, uh, he made 35 starts in the cup series. He never won, a race, yes. but he did have a top five and he had six top 10. So, you know, he had, he had six top tens out of 35 starts. That's pretty darn good for a guy who's essentially a part-time driver. And, and yeah. here's the other thing too. He started his cup career uh, very much on an old as an older driver his first cup start uh was in 1966 he was 40 years old at the time his last cup start was 82 he was 56 years old so and that you know wow. that was the year he died unfortunately you know but i'll tell you i mean now this is the yankee in me coming out and i'm not gonna bring up salisbury versus salisbury <laughs> you just, but this, you this just is, did <laughs> i know but i know well i had to kind of i had to kind of but but okay. this, is the, this is the yankee in me okay? okay so you know as i grew up uh you know as you know a young man um there were actually you know a number of musicians that really um 
I envied and I really enjoyed. And I always made a pact to myself. I know this is going to sound really corny, Ben, but bear with me. Mm -hmm. There were a a few um, musicians who were taken from us way too early. Marty Robbins was one of them. Right. And and Jim Croce was another one. Yes, definitely. And I vowed to myself that anytime a song of Jim Croce's or Marty Robbins came out, and this is no bull. This is the total honest to God truth. Anytime a song by Jim Croce or Marty Robbins came on the radio after they, you know, sadly passed away, I would never turn that song off until it was over. I know it's kind of sounds crazy, but this is just the way I was. And I maintained that thing for probably, well, it's pretty much been since my entire life. I mean, I know my best friend who sadly I lost about three years ago, actually, Jesus Christ, it was just, uh, he died on the 19th of this month. I just, just dawned on me. It'll be three years on the 19th. But, um, um, we talked about this at length about it and he, he kind of got into that whole spirit too, but, um, yeah, uh, for whatever reason, Marty Robbins and Jim Croce, I just, I love their music. I mean, and you know, I, I could never, I could never do that vibrato or that falsetto that Marty did when he did would sing El Paso city, where you go El Paso city by the Rio Grande. <laughs> never could do that that very good, but I tried. So but anyway. well, way, way better than I could do it. <laughs> Yeah. And, hey, and, and one more thing. We got way off the beaten path here, but one more thing. All right. Uh, talking about Jim Crutchy, he did a song called Ode to Roy Hall. And the Roy Hall he's talking about is the Roy Hall that drove for Raven Parks. I did not know that. Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah. And that. Uh, yeah, it's a song that he came out with. Um, uh, it, it's just about rapid Roy Hall. And and you know, Roy Hall was a driver that drove for Raymond Parks, and so did Lloyd C. back in nineteen in the early nineteen forties. And the Roy Hall that he talks about is the one that I've mentioned on the podcast before, mm-hmm. saying that you know that he was he was a moonshiner, as was Lloyd C. and Raymond Parks, and he was so good on the racetrack. Roy Hall, as was Lloyd C., but he this is the one that the you know the, the people go to the stands and at this fairgrounds and. This, and the announcer says, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, sorry to announce that Roy Hall will not be here tonight. And they go, oh, you know, but he'll, the sheriff of the county promises me he'll be out of jail in time to race next week. Well, this is the same Roy Hall that Jim Croce talks about in his, or sings about in his story and his, in his song. So, yeah, Roy, uh, Jim Croce picked up on the story somewhere along the way and wrote a song about it. That, so, I've got to find that song. It's got to be yeah. on YouTube, I'm sure. I yeah, yeah it, yeah, it is. So that's Ra- Rapid Roy Hall is, is what he sings about. So how we got off on this song. <laughs> you know, you, you're liable to hear anything on the Lifetime of Motorsports. That's right. So, exactly. So that's, that's what makes this, this podcast so fun because we, you know, I mean, uh, you know, we, I, I think it was, we're, we were kind of channeling Daryl Walter from earlier when we were talking to Jeff Hammond. I mean, it just kind of evolved into that, but you know, well, like, we should do a show on, on race drivers and songs and singing. And, you know, there were albums that were yeah. put out in the seventies that sung by Bobby Allison, Daryl Walter, Buddy Baker, Richard Petty, yeah. Yarborough. Yeah. So maybe we should just, should do a, a spinoff show on songs and singing and things to do with NASCAR. 
Well, wasn't wasn't there a a Christmas album? If I remember correctly, didn't some there wasn't didn't several NASCAR mm. drivers do like a Christmas album? I thought possibly. I think there I'm was. not sure, but we'll we'll have our crack research department, <laughs> which is Us. me and you. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> we'll we'll do that. We'll check on that and see what we can come up with. Well, but here's yes. here's here's another idea. What about you know guys who came into NASCAR um, who were successes in other sports and or yeah. or other 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 uh disciplines let's put it that way like like a uh, uh, marty robbins sure uh, i mean we've got jerry glanville i don't know for whatever reason his name popped in my head about five minutes yeah. ago. I had to, you know but i mean here's a guy whatever happened to him or how about uh, jimmy johnson not the, the race car driver but jimmy johnson the uh the football owner uh football coach he he got it he he i don't think he ever raced a car he was involved in nascar for a while there and then what about remember how um oh what's his name um um oh come on um uh roger staubach and um um oh, dan marino no no the other guy that <laughs> followed staubach um the other um uh, the big cowboys so, quarterback uh tony uh tony aikman no uh, troy aikman troy aikman troy oh, yeah, sorry troy. Yeah, remember remember they formed all american racing and it was going to be they, they had terry labani and um uh, yes who was the other guy um the guy was from indiana and i can't think of his name now um, and they they were going to be the the next big thing, and I think all American racing lasted for what two years, maybe three years, and then it was gone, unfortunately. And then I'll never forget, and and this this is one of the prototypical Hollywood PR stunts that never materialized. And I don't know if you were at this race or not, but uh, I think it was two thousand and five. I think it might have been or six. Out at Fontana, California, NASCAR is there, you know, for their big race. And the Wayan brothers, who I absolutely love, great comedians, great actors, love those guys. They came and they had a, uh, I, I can't remember if they actually were promoting anything or it was just a press conference or, or, or what have you. But they said, yeah, we're going to have a NASCAR team next year. Well, that never happened. I'm still waiting for that. But, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'd like to, we should think about a show and maybe see if we can get somebody who still, like maybe a, a Jerry Glanville, if he's still around, he'd be available to talk, um, you know, about what it was that prompted these guys to want to come into NASCAR after being successes in other sports. I think that'd be a great show. Yes, it would. And, and hey, you just never know, man, what you're going to hear on a lifetime of motorsports. That's right. Exactly. We, we have a lot to talk about. That's we do. We definitely do. And, and uh, get me a, a, a couple of cans of Coke and get Ben some RC Cola. And man, we're wired. We're good to go here. So but we're good to go. That's right. All right, my brother. Listen, you take it easy. A great show as always. Again, many thanks to our guest, Jeff Hammond, and uh, really appreciate him taking the time. I, I know he was in a time crunch, but he took the he was very gracious and took the time to really give us a, uh, some great stories and a great interview. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in Motorsports, episode number 79. We'll be back with episode 80 next week right here on a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast. Have a good week, everyone. We'll talk to you later. For Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Take care.